All right, two weeks till Christmas. How are you doing? How's it going? Is this a stressful month for you? Is it joyful? Is it happy? Is it good? Is it hard? I know for a lot of us, it's a, it's a very busy time. There's a lot to do. There's presents to buy. There's parties to go to. There's family things uh, that are going on. This weekend for us has been super busy for our family. Um, we have uh, in-laws at my house staying the entire weekend, and we hosted my wife's side of the family for uh, our Christmas dinner and everything last night. We have our son who's in a, a Christmas play, and they had four productions over the weekend uh, that he's part of doing that. Uh, I've been to the mall uh, twice this weekend and just battled that. So pray for me. Would you pray for me, please? <laughs> So interesting, so interesting that at Christmas, all that we celebrate in terms of the birth of Jesus and all that goes into it, and then how busy we get, how stressed out we get, how many things get kind of piled on other things. For many of us, it is, although there's so much to celebrate, also, like I said, one of the most stressful times of the year. For many of us, it's, it's one of the most financially stretching times of the year as we're trying to do all kinds of stuff with our money. There, there's schedules that just get crammed with things. And uh, that's really good. And actually, all those things that I mentioned this weekend have been really, really good. We've had awesome family time this weekend. Uh, I got to go watch our son in his performance yesterday, and it was so amazing. I was so proud of him, and um, it was just a beautiful thing. Um, I love getting gifts for, for family and for friends and stuff like that, so it's been really good. Today, as we start this new series, we're talking about when God speaks. And in the midst of all of that, what I'm wondering is, if we just spent some quiet time reflecting, if we spend some time meditating on the Christmas story that we read in Scripture, if, how we would answer the question, if God were to speak to us this Christmas, what would he say? And perhaps in all the really great things that we do to celebrate, and I love them all just like I know many of you love them, what if there was just times where we were real intentional about slowing down, creating quiet space, Asking God to speak to us and listening. Perhaps just spending some time in the scriptures and reading the stories that we read. Maybe every year if you come to church, every year you hear the same stories, they become very sentimental. But what if we just, uh, we just really leaned into them and asked God, what are you trying to speak to us at Christmas? Because the Christmas stories, the stories of Jesus' birth really set up uh, the entire life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They tell us so much about who Jesus is. And so that's what I want to do for you. And I hope that even over these next couple of weeks, if your life might be a little bit chaotic, or if you're on the other side, and maybe things are, are lonely for you, and you wish there was more going on and more people around, that maybe on Sunday mornings for this week, next week, and on, on Christmas Eve might be times where we could come together and collectively do that, just to quiet ourselves, to come to scriptures, to come to these really, really amazing, powerful stories and ask God, what are you saying to us? How would you speak to us? And together to celebrate God's word to the world, Jesus, who has come to meet us where we are. So today in that, we're going to read through some of the story of Matthew, that, that the gospel of Matthew presents of Jesus' birth. And I have a challenge for you, and then I have an encouragement for you. The challenge is essentially this. For us in our world, in our culture, in our lives, to find a new way, a new way of living, a new way of making decisions, a new way of seeing the world around us. In some ways, it's a more difficult path. In other ways, it is uh, one that is lighter and less burdensome, but it's a new way for us to make decisions. So let me read a story that maybe, again, if you've been in church uh, or at least come at Christmas time, you've heard many times, but it comes from Matthew chapter 2. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. In the Christmas story, there's a number of paradoxes, we might call them. There's a number of things that don't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. There's a number of things that are paired together in the Christmas story that don't normally go together. A virgin who gets pregnant. God, the fullness of divinity in a human being. The fullness of humanity. We have in this story a star in the sky and wise men that come and following the star come to find Jesus. If you're a Jew in the first century and you know your Old Testament or their Hebrew scriptures even somewhat well, one of the things that you would know is that Jewish people are not supposed to look in the skies for signs. Things like astrology and and stargazing, uh, these are for magicians, sorcerers, wizards. These are not things that the Israelite people to do. Actually, things that are forbidden for Israelite people to do or Jewish people to do. That they are certainly not to look for a star for the signs of the times or to tell them anything. That was things that people uh, from, from outside of their religious tradition, outside of their ethnicity, maybe did. But we don't do that. They did not do that. They were forbidden to do that in places like Leviticus in the scriptures. And yet, here we have a story where you have these wise men who come from the east. They come from somewhere else. They're somewhere foreign. And they come because they're following a star. They are tracking the stars to see a sign. And they come there to find Jesus. It's probably one of the early indications that when we're reading the story of Jesus in the the gospel of Matthew, what we're told right away is that the story of Jesus is going to spill over the boundaries. That if we're looking for a story that is just for us in in our group of people with what we're comfortable to, a message to people who are already on the inside following all the rules and doing all the things, we get a very different message. We have a story of wise men coming from a distant land. So these are people who are not like us, don't think like us, don't worship like us, don't act like us, doing something that we normally wouldn't do for the Jewish people. And yet that's big part of the Christmas story. Now, a star in the sky uh, coming for a ruler or somebody who's important in this time, of, uh, this time in history and this place in the world was actually something that had a lot of precedent for. There is a story. We look at the, the star. What is the star all about? Um, the Romans are the superpowers of the world when Jesus is born. They are the ones who kind of rule things. They've got the most power, the biggest army. They've got a, a ton of territory. Caesar Augustus, who's the nephew of Julius Caesar, is thought to be, by most people at this time, the ruler of the world. And uh, as such, they had a lot of stories about where he came from. Just like we have the stories in the Gospels about Jesus' birth, there were all these stories about the lineage 
lineage of the current rulers, of Caesar Augustus. So they claimed that the lineage of Caesar Augustus and the others that came before him went back thousands of years, and they descended from Venus, the daughter of Jupiter, so a goddess. There was an author named Virgil, and he wrote about how the Roman Empire essentially came to be and how the rulers were legitimized. And he wrote something called the Enid, which is an epic about that story and the lineage of Rome. And the story essentially goes like this. You have a guy named Aeneas, and he is escaping Troy, which is a city that's being destroyed, and it was pretty much doomed. And so he, lives, he leaves Troy, and he leaves with his father on his shoulder, so he's carrying his shoulder, as legend has it, and his son, who's named Julius, who he's leading by the hand. And as they leave that, that doomed city of Troy, they eventually travel and end up in Italy. And from there, as they escape, the whole kind of Roman race and Julius line, so all those that kind of have that Julian name in it, come from this. So it's where we get the name Julius Caesar, for example. He's in the Julian line. And then eventually uh, Caesar Augustus. So uh, they had this story, this epic, this legend that kind of followed them around. And if you look into history and you find different um, aspects of the history that depict this story, what you often see, and you can, if you Google this, you can see it, is you have um, those characters. You got the father on the thing and Julius being led, and uh, they're on a star. There's a big star. And it's the star of Venus. Venus is the, the goddess. And what those stories do, what those legends essentially do is legitimize the current leaders and say, listen to this huge story that they have of escaping miraculously as this goddess guided them and led them all the way. And part of how we know that they are the ones who are supposed to be in charge and we're supposed to follow them and they lead us is because they have this divine authority given to them by the goddess. Now, again, this is all very foreign to the Jewish people or whatever, except they would have understood this and realized it. And so what we have in Matthew is this story, and we say, hey, probably when you hear about a star in the sky and people following and being leaded, you're probably thinking Caesar Augustus. That's his story. That's his legitimacy. That's the, 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 the divine, the gods were, were leading them and caring for them and all this kind of stuff. And now you have this story of people coming from another place following another star depicting a new leader and a different kind of leader. You have almost a, a counter story that is now being proposed in the life of Jesus. So who are these people who are coming and following the star? They are, uh, sometimes we call them the wise men in the famous song. It's we three kings. The uh, word in Greek is literally the magi. The Magi, there's some debate over who exactly these people were. I think the best explanation is to take that word straight out. The Magi were kingmakers, okay? The Magi, uh, which really is kind of an untranslatable word. It's, it's the word that's in the Greek, and it just means Magi. But they are most likely a tribe of people. And uh, there's another historian from the ancient world called Herodotus. And he said that they were similar to, um, in, in Israel's history, there was a class of people within Israel called the Levites. And the Levites were in charge of all the things in the temple. Before that, the tabernacle. They were in charge of helping people worship. They were the priests. They were people that would make sure that the sacrifice 
sacrifices were done properly and people could come and worship. Well, there was a group of these people in the Persian Empire, hundreds of years leading up to the birth of Jesus, that were called Magi. And so these were people who had influence in Rome and Babylon. Before that, the Medes and the Persians. They were a group of uh, monotheistic people who came out of the Persian Empire. Uh, and along the way, the Persian Empire, uh, they converted to a religion called Zoroastrianism, um, which is a monotheistic religion. So they worshiped one God, which was just like Judaism and then Christianity, fairly um, uncommon in the ancient world uh, where they would worship many, many gods and goddesses. Um, but they would do all kinds of things to offer sacrifices. And the Magi, would be people who would, they used fire to do these different sacrifices and to lead people in how they were to worship. They sacrificed animals just like the Jewish people did in the temple. Um, They had clean and unclean animals just like the Jewish people did. So there was some overlap in how they thought in what they did. We see some of these people uh, as the people that Daniel was in charge of. You know, a little bit of history. Uh, The book of Daniel, Daniel gets uh, dragged away into the Babylonian empire and eventually gets put in charge of a bunch of people. And in some translations, it says it's the magicians and wizards and people like this. It's the magi. It's that class that Daniel actually had authority over at one time. And we think that in history, um, there was a a bleeding over of different religions that some of these people, um, these magi, actually maybe converted to Judaism or actually had some part in worshiping uh, in that way. Um, But essentially, here's what's important. In the Persian Empire... The, the Magis were so important that there was no one could be king. No one could be crowned king in the Persian Empire unless two things. One, that person mastered the spiritual disciplines of the Magi. So remember, they're these people that sort of help people in their spirituality and that tradition. And then number two, they had to be crowned and approved by the Magi. In other words, for the Jews, in a different tradition, people who think differently and act differently and have different ideas, there's this priestly group of people called the Magis who are kingmakers, who legitimize the king, who if you're saying, hey, who are we following? Who's legitimate? Who's in charge of things? In some way, the the Magi would have to be brought in. They had this authority and they had to kind of govern and say, you've got to be able to follow this way of living and we have to give our approval. So now in the story of Matthew, you have this star where people would probably be reminded, oh yeah, Caesar Augustus, he's in charge because of the star that is in his lineage that guided his family and, and all the people that came after them all the way leading down to him. And then you have these magi showing up and you go, these guys are a big deal. These are the guys that that tell people, yes, this is a legitimate king. They are part of the authority that makes that happen. So do you see what's happening here? This is a royal story. This is now the story of Jesus spilling over the boundaries because you have people coming from a different place and a different tradition and different theology and following a star, which we're not supposed to do. And yet they're all coming and they're looking for Jesus to be king. Amazing. King Herod, who comes in here, we read the story, and he is threatened right away. King Herod in history, we know quite a bit about King Herod. Uh, He was a paranoid, narcissistic monarch. He was not a great guy. He was always, we have this history laid out for us, he was always threatened, thinking that even people as part of his family were going to overthrow him, have a coup kill him, whatever, to take over his throne. All he could think about was his power, and he needed to be in charge. One of the quotes from history is that it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He killed two of his sons because they were a threat to him as the king. 
One of his wives he did away with because he was so focused on his own power and what he was going to do. And so think of Herod for a second. Herod's sitting here and all of a sudden these kingmakers from another empire come over and they say, we're looking for the king of the Jews and he's the king of the Jews. Now he's a puppet king. He's been put in place because the Romans think that they can, uh, they, they can pull the strings and they can get him to do whatever they want him to do, which is probably true, at least to a certain level. Yet he's the king of the Jews. And now the kingmakers come following a star saying, we've seen the star, we're following, we're looking for the real king of the Jews. Herod is threatened. Of course he's threatened. And so the wise men, the magi, come and they go and they find Jesus. They bring their gifts. I know the story. I know all the stuff goes with it. We don't know how many magi there were. We three kings, there's three gifts. We don't know how many people there were. We don't know how many magi there were. But they have three gifts that they bring. When they find Jesus, these are the gifts that they give him. And the gifts represent significantly who they think Jesus is when they find him. Number one, they have gold. Gold, just very basically, is a gift fit for a king. It's precious. It's valuable. There's places in Scripture we read about these kind of gifts being presented to kings, like Isaiah 6, verse 60, verse 6. You can go read it. Uh, but, but even just like we would say, wow, gold is precious and valuable, this is the kind of thing you would give somebody. Very, very important. This is the kind of gift you would give to a king. Here come the kingmakers. They follow the star. They go through the current king, come to Jesus, and they present him with gold, the gift for a king. And then they give him frankincense. Frankincense is uh, a resin that comes from a particular tree. It's very highly prized at this time uh, and place in the world, probably from the Arabian Peninsula, uh, a native tree that had to be imported in from Israel, so it wasn't necessarily easy to get. That's probably why it was expensive. And they would cut into the, the tree, and in winter there was a sap that would come out, and they would take the sap, they would harden it, they would crystallize it, and then they would kind of shave it into a powder. And then when you burn that powder, it had a beautiful, wonderful smell, frankincense. It appears in Scripture, you can read about it uh, at least 17 times. Frankincense is used by priests. It's used for priests and by priests. It's used to anoint priests when they're inaugurated. It's used for things like meal offerings. When they would do some sacrifices in the temple, uh, the point was they would take an animal, and as they burnt the animal, the smells would go up to God, and it was like, it was like uh, preparing a meal for God. So a meal offering was like, God, we want to eat together. We want to be united. We want to celebrate together. We want to be in relationship together. And so as they did that with animals, they would also have fragrance that would be beautiful. We read even in the New Testament, places like Philippians 4 talks about how our lives should be a fragrance like that, like a meal offering given to God, this beautiful scent that invites him to come and to meet with us so that we can be together. So frankincense is used by priests. It's a substance used by priests in the worship of God and the inauguration of others. And so if they bring him gold, it's because they believe him to be a king. If they bring him frankincense, it's because they acknowledge him as the priest, the one who mediates relationship between people and God. And then they brought myrrh. Myrrh was another resin from a tree, or is, still used some places. It's uh, aromatic. It smells good. It's used for, like we would say, spa treatments. Esther uses this. If you read the book of Esther, and she's going through this beautification process, and she used myrrh. Um, the, the word in Hebrew and Greek actually sound um, like our word myrrh. Um, there's a place where they would get this from called Smyrna. Smyrna, there was also an association the rabbis would have with myrrh and how it sounded with the word in Hebrew for Mariah. 
And Moriah was the place where Abraham sacrificed or almost sacrificed his son, Isaac. And so the rabbis had this tradition where they would associate myrrh with sacrifice and specifically the sacrifice of a father, a son by his father. Myrrh, beyond all of that, maybe most importantly here, was associated with sacrifice and death. It's used as an embalming fluid. It was used, given to Jesus after Jesus died. Nicodemus brought him myrrh to help with the smell of his body that was going to decay. And so here, as we have the king, Jesus, the priest, Jesus, we also see the foreshadowing of the one who would give his life, die for the people that he loves. What does this teach us? I think it teaches us that uh, what was being told in this story, what was being recognized even from people far out of the tradition of Jesus and his Jewish people is that Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God. That's what he would announce. The kingdom of God is now here. And who's the king? Who's going to set the agenda? It's Jesus. And more that the presence of God for that kingdom would be mediated by Jesus, our great priest, who would show us how to live with him and make sure that our way for us to live with him was possible as priest and that he would essentially be the sacrifice to make sure that that could happen. It's a beautiful counter story to the story of Rome or the story of Herod. In other words, the point is Caesar is not king. Herod is not king. Jesus is king and priest and sacrifice. I love the little phrase at the end of that passage that we read where it says, you know, they realize they go to Herod and then they go on to the king, Jesus. They find Jesus. They essentially are making him king in their minds. And then they know Herod is up to something. They know Herod, he's just going to eliminate threats. He's going to eliminate Jesus. He's going to go on to try and eliminate uh, all the the Jewish boys to make sure that no one was a threat to him, which makes you think of Pharaoh, uh, who was all the way back in the the ancient world uh, at the exile. This was the time where the, the Jewish people were in exile in Egypt and Pharaoh, again, threatened by the Jewish people, was going to kill all the the male children. So there's a lot of illusions here, a lot of this story now being fulfilled in Jesus. We see, wow, all these things that we had kind of pictures of now. In Jesus, we're seeing this entire story is coming to fruition. And they say as they go through Herod, they realize, oh, we get what Herod's going to do. We get he's threatened. And at the end, it says uh, that they went back to their home. They took another way. They found another way. And I love that phrase, and I think it's actually a play on word. Some of the earliest Christians were called simply the way because they devoted themselves to the way of Jesus. It was a different way. So here is the Christmas challenge. My challenge to you today is for us to go another way. For us to say, if Jesus is king, if Jesus is in charge, if he sets the agenda, if Jesus is our priest, which means we depend on him for our relationship and our our, our life in relationship to God, and he shows us other people, and he's done that by giving his life in love to us, we must choose to go another way. And we might not be kingmakers in the way that the, the magi were kingmakers, and yet we are all kingmakers, aren't we? In our own lives, we're kingmakers. We're sort of deciding whether we're doing it uh, on purpose or by accident. What is it that rules our lives? What is it that is in charge? Who's in charge? What is in charge? And whatever is functionally in charge of our lives will be threatened by a new king. And so if we choose to go another way, to live a new way, to live the way of Jesus, the things that are functionally being kings in our lives will be threatened. If money is functionally our king, if we make decisions based on what's going to make me the most money, how do I keep most money, how do I have to spend most money on myself or whatever it is that's important to me, generosity of Jesus will be extremely threatening to that. If our pride is our king, 
then things like forgiveness and reconciliation will be extremely threatening to our king. If our self is our king, everything's about me and what I want and what I can do, then the selfless sacrificial love will be threatening to our self, to our king. And so this is a great challenge and very difficult. But to turn and say, Caesar is not king, Herod is not king, money is not king, power is not king, self is not king, sex is not king, Jesus is king. And to go another way, to make decisions based on following Jesus and to believe that he is our king, he is our priest, and he is the sacrifice. Now an encouragement. Go back one chapter. Remember, Matthew is trying to tell us that not just, in, uh, not just for the Jewish people, but for everybody, Jesus is king. He does that a number of ways. He does that in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to get into it. It's the one everybody skips when you're reading through the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's an amazing chapter. Go read that chapter and pick out the four women before Mary and read their stories in Scripture. Four women in the list of all men, which is very common, not the women part, the men part, and go read their stories and find out that all of these women in the lineage of what Matthew is laying out to be the king, you have four women, all of whom their story is marked by scandal, being completely mistreated sexually. And yet this is the story of Jesus coming to Mary, who is a virgin, who is now pregnant, which raises a lot of eyebrows, who's going to be the mother of Jesus. It's an incredible genealogy. This is our king. Let's not shy away from the messy story of how we got here. But then it says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and behold, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Little context about this story. Originally, it was written Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus. It was a time where the kingdom of Israel had been broken into two. The north was Israel, the south was Judah. Judah was under great threat, and they were being attacked from people on all sides. And there were two leaders that came uh, from the north of them. Um, Pekah and Rezin, they were the leaders of Syria and of Israel, and they were not uh, in any way the kind of people that lived the way that the people of Judah were being called to live in how they worshipped and their morality and all these kinds of things. But they were under threat. The invitation from these two kings was for their king, Ahaz, to join them in an alliance. He needed security. He needed safety. So they came and said, join us and we'll protect you from the other people. Together we're a little bit stronger. And yet, the word of God coming to Isaiah was, the problem is if you align and you trust these kings, you're going to become like these people. And these people are not the kind of people that you want to become with. Like, this is not the people that you should trust. These are not the people you should enter into alliance with. But then you would have sit there, King Ahaz, saying, but we're so vulnerable. We're just small. There are these superpowers that are going to wipe us out. We don't know how we can go forward. We don't know the way. And in the middle of that comes this prophecy that a virgin shall, virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Now this word in Hebrew, uh, virgin, 
most of the time would have referred to uh, a girl who was not yet marrying age. This was not originally taken as a prophecy of someone who had not ever been with a man is going to have a baby. The prophecy was someone who right now is too young to get married and have a child, pretty soon will marry uh, and have a child, and you will call him Emmanuel, and you'll look at this king, you'll look at this, this baby grows into a king, and you will say, ah, this is where peace comes from. We're going to experience peace. This will be a ruler who's going to save us from all of our, our threats. So instead of joining with these, these northern kings, Pekka and Rezin, you just, you just wait because there's someone. The point is it's not going to take that long. There's a girl now. She's not ready yet, but soon she will be. She'll become the mother of this child. And when you look at the child, you'll say, God is at work. He's protecting us. Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Hebrew, im is with, manu is us, el is God. With us is God. Hold on. Trust me, God is saying. It's not going to take that long. There's a, there's a young girl. And in just due time, she's going to grow up, be old enough. She's going to have a, daughter, a son, and that son's going to be a king. He's going to save you. Originally, the fulfillment, most people would say this is either, speaking of Hezekiah, who's a king who comes and um, reforms the people and turns things around. Some people think that the fulfillment was Isaiah's son, <coughs> excuse me, who we read about. And all those are probably true. In biblical prophecies like this, sometimes what interpreters talk about is multiple fulfillment. In, that, in the Old Testament, we sometimes see a prophecy given and there's some kind of fulfillment. And then the New Testament writers come along and say, you saw that and, and you saw how God worked in that, but I'm telling you, there's an even greater fulfillment. And then they point us to Jesus. So in the Matthew story, when this is picked up as a quote, it's you remember, you remember the threat under Ahaz? And the, the prophecy came and said, don't join these guys. And God's saying, trust me, because I'm going to be with you. Trust me, trust me. And maybe it was Hezekiah, maybe it was Isaiah's son that grew up and helped them or whatever. Now the writer in Matthew is saying, hey, remember that? Okay, now we're in another spot. Caesar's not king. Herod's not king. We have another king. And behold, a virgin, which can also mean just a woman who hasn't been with a man, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now look at Mary, look at her son, look at that which has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus, but he is the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel. God is with us. The challenge is this. Go another way. Don't go the way of power and money and success. Don't go the way that sometimes seems easy. Don't go the way that hurts other people. Go the way of Jesus. You say, that's incredibly hard. It's incredibly challenging. We don't know if we can do it. And God says, I am with you. How do we know? Behold the virgin and look at her son. His name is Jesus. And God will be with us. So what is it that God would speak to us, perhaps even today, as we enter into the Christmas season and get a little bit closer? Perhaps it's a challenge. Go another way and an encouragement. I'm with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this powerful, powerful Christmas story. Thank you for this message that was true uh, in some form in the ancient world for the, the people of Judah. Thank you for how it's true in Jesus, and thank you for how true it is today that you are with us your presence is all around us. Today, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to, to see his way in the world, to listen to his teaching, to follow his example. Give us strength to do that. Give us courage to do that. And God, help us to know, each one of us, wherever we're at, whatever we're going through, whatever our struggles are, whatever our failures are, to be reminded that you are with us. 
Thank you, God, for Emmanuel.